We are here. I'm very excited to say that we're here. Podcast number seven, Ducks Don't Get Cold Feet. And do we have the cyber royalty in the house? <laughs> we have Mr. Moen Koo here. And he's actually in Adelaide, which is so exciting because he is a good mate. And to actually have him, well, I don't know if I should say he's a good mate, actually. But to actually have him in town uh, for once is fantastic. So, Mo, welcome. Thank you, mate. So, Mo, we had a bit of a look about you, obviously, originally from Adelaide, and we first met probably in the early car scene back in the day, and you had a little car, little hatchback back then, which was very exciting to at the times. Supercharged Corolla. Supercharged Corolla. So we're going back a little while there. We'll leave the, uh, the years out. But in saying that, that's how we met, really, and that, that's sort of been a, a life, lifetime friendship so far, which has been super cool. So really glad to have you back in town. And one of the things early on in the piece when we talked about Moen is that you've had a pretty interesting upbringing. So sure. one of the things that we noticed before you went into cybersecurity, and I remember you used to be into games quite a bit, there's no doubt about that. But one of the things that I've, I've picked up that you were doing is you used to be a stunt person. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know where you dug that up from, but yes, yes, that was that was where I first started out. So what sort of movies are we talking about? Like you come across as the karate, Asian karate fighter. Well, karate is ge generally associated with Japanese. I have no Japanese background. Let me just put that out there to start off well, with. But um, I, I could beg martial to, arts I, is definitely... I, I could beg to differ. <laughs> There's a corona to just to match up with the times of the coronas here. <laughs> And cheers. Cheers, mate. We're just, it, Moen's about to make an interesting conversation, I think. Yeah, so um, when I first came out of high school, we, we, we got into uh, making films. And myself and a couple of friends, we, we took it pretty seriously. And, and we, uh, we started uh, uh, shooting some action films. And we actually entered into the uh, 1998 Young Filmmakers Festival. And we won the People's Choice Award with, with something that we put together there. And we went on to do a, a number of other things, and I moved into uh, a film and television company called Imagination Entertainment, which was way back in the day. Yep. Um, and ended up um, running one of their online uh, businesses there, and that's kind of what got me into tech. Just like that, like, it starts off. So the reality is you, you could have been the next Jackie Chan. <laughs> had I had the funding behind me to pay for the action movies that we were making, yes. Uh, so, and I'm still yet to see one of these movies, so I am interested in it. But in, in saying that, in your upbringing, you know, we're going to talk about cyber security, but in your upbringing, and were you, did you have a fascination with technology or were you the usual kid like me collecting comics and, and just doing things like that? Or did you have, were you more of a Lego, put things together sort of man? Neither, actually. I was, I was always into the, the great outdoors. I was into mountain biking. I was into BMXs. I was into skateboarding. Um, I was never into technology. In fact, I couldn't think of anything I'd rather not do than tech. Wow. <laughs> As so I was growing a, up. So, so that's a U-turn. So at what time did you think that, oh, maybe I'll have a look at this technology thing? And, and bear in mind, when we were in probably our 20s, the internet was just coming out for being more adaptable. Yep. And let's face it, I, I can go back to school and we weren't even using the internet when we we're at school. So, yep. Jesus. Yeah. That. And I'm not a boomer. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. We're Generation X. I'm happy to say that. But, you know, you talk about how we've adapted. We've been brought up with technology. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that the way you saw it? 
Yeah, no, not really. So, so where I first kind of got into sort of thinking about technology as a solution to a problem where, you know, let's take a step back. So my, my dad had one of the biggest sort of private accounting practices in, in Adelaide at the time. And, and big back then was like he had 20 accountants, let's say. Um, and one thing that I always remember growing up, I used to spend weekends there, you know, folding newsletters and putting them in post boxes and stuff like that as I was growing up. And one thing that I always remembered was there was a room inside his office building, which was a, the, called the filing cabinet room. And, and that was under lock and key. That door, you know, was pretty much locked most of the time. And when it was open during working hours, every accountant had a key to their own filing cabinet drawer. And you know, my dad had the master key to, the, to, to all of them, but they all had a key to their drawer. And that was just always, I always stuck out in my mind. And then one day, you know, when I was in, I was in high school, all of a sudden, the filing cabinet room disappeared. All the filing cabinets disappeared and on everyone's desk was a computer. And I remember asking my dad, you know, so how do you now know what, who's accessing what? He's like, oh, you don't need to worry about that anymore. This is the age of computers. You know, obviously, looking back now, a very naive statement. But back in those days, everyone was thinking that. You know, especially the ones that were not from our generation, that were from pre-our generation. You know, this was just so foreign to them that they just took it for granted that this is what this is the way the world's so going this now. Is, this is nineties. Oh, yeah. uh, this is this has got to be late eighties. This has got to be late eighties, yeah. right? Because um, most people can, can cast well, people that are alive. Uh, most people go. Back to, <laughs> <laughs> That's most, rude. <laughs> most people that go back to Windows ninety seven. Like that, that to me, that's Windows a, 95, mate. Yeah, so those two, mm-hmm. that to me, I can distinctly remember. So mm-hmm. that was very early days. So you probably are mm-hmm. talking late 80s? Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep, yep. late 80s. So, so you've come in and you're like, well, what am I going to do now? I'm not doing any more postage? <laughs> so, so basically, I mean, yeah, no, I'd stopped doing postage at that point and I was, I was right into my uh, martial arts and into my mountain biking. But um, that thought always stuck in my head that I just can't, you know, I can't accept, you know, what my dad's saying is is normal and we just don't need to know anymore. It just didn't make sense. And as you start to get into technology and you understand how file systems work and things like that, then you start to realise this is worse than not having a lock and key on a filing cabinet drawer. This is far worse because who knows where it's going and it can go anywhere in an instant. And, and in fact, it was going everywhere all the time. And, you know, if you're talking about an accounting firm, that's very sensitive information. It's not just credit card details and, and things like that. It's actually much deeper than that. It's, it's about what people are spending their money on. And you're in the retail game. You know how important that is, right? And, you know, even today, wind the clock forward to what are we, 2020 now? Yep. There's still so many organizations that just don't get how important it is to defend and protect that information. There's so many individuals out there of all ages, shapes and sizes that don't understand. You know, I remember, you know, I was living in London at the time when when Facebook came out, when it it really went big. And I remember saying to my wife at the time, this is not going to end well. Um, And she says, what do you mean? I said, you know, well, just be very, very careful about what you post. You know, once it's up there, it's done. Right. And, and, you know, people used to tell me over the years, well, no, 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 I've got it on privacy settings switched on. And, you know, only only my friends can see it. And I'm like, that's complete bullshit. You know, excuse my French, but it's complete bullshit, because at the end of the day, how many people does Facebook employ? Thousands, 
hundreds of thousands yeah, maybe by now, right? Yeah. Um, and every one of those people that may have access to your data can do something with it that yeah. you don't want them to do. So this concept of privacy is only finally, think about it. I was, I was, I was concerned about this issue in the 80s when I was a kid. And only today we're starting to grapple with what does privacy really mean and actually starting to put some controls in place, starting to make organisations accountable for how they deal with our data. It's a serious issue. Yeah, and uh, I guess if we can lead on and try to keep the timeline of when you started to think, okay, I'm going to start up a a business and I I believe your first tech business was DTEX. Yep, that's right. And I remember back in the day, you mentioning this, and I was like, oh, this guy, mate, he's out there. He's trying <laughs> something quite far-fetched, so cyber security. I remember thinking, oh, well, he'll make anything work. That's my mentality. And you came and you presented something to me, which basically, this is, is tell me if this is right, you had software that could see when things were happening with your own organisation that would just flag something of of note, whether it was an unusual email to be forwarded or a document to be downloaded, and it could flag to a person, is that person meant to be looking at? That is the broadest brush thing ever, but... That's what you sold to me. We, Mate, I, I am impressed, JP. I, that, there is nothing wrong with that, that grey matter that you've got up there. <laughs> well, you, you told me that. And I, I remember grabbing my IT guy and I could tell they were like, oh, this is from another planet. And I was like, oh, oh to me, it seemed a little bit logical. But in the end, you started DTEX um, in 2000, just mm-hmm. after the millennial, everyone knows what happened for the millennial, if we were all waiting for everything to shut down when um, 1999 went to the year 2000 at, at midnight, mm-hmm. thinking everything was going to shut mm-hmm. down, nothing happened, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then you come out in 2000 saying, hey, I'm going to set up this business called DTEX. So how did you get to that role? Yeah, so, so you know, that there was a lot that happened before that. So, you know, um, you know bring that idea and that concept of, you know, how can you possibly not know, you know, employ, employ 20 accountants, 100 people, 1,000 people, 5,000 people. You know, if you're an employer, how can you not know what people are doing with the data? That was the, that was the whole basis behind DTEX, okay. right? Yep. How can you not know, how can you have people's private and confidential information and not know what's being done with that? Yep. You have a duty of care to protect that data. Right, people are entrusting you with that data. It is your responsibility to look after that. Now, turns out that was a very, very foreign concept to everyone, and we were way before our time. Exactly as your IT guys responded, the whole world responded in the same way. Yeah. Um, and so we were we were very, very early in that thinking. But you know, we, I was I was pretty sure that that there was there was going to be a time when people would realise that this had to be taken care of. Right. So this is in the this is two thousand. This, so this is, is this twenty is, years ago. Yeah, this is twenty years ago. Um, and and I met a couple of couple of young guys, um, very young guys. I was I think I was twenty one at the time, and and uh, and these guys that I met had dropped out of high school, so they were seventeen years old, and they had been um, pulled aside by the principal of their school. Um, they'd been doing things like hacking into the school network and changing their grades oh, and, and, well. and uh, taking control of the, their teacher's uh, email address and sending 
emails to other students and things. So they, these boys were, were very, very, they knew their way around the network. They knew their way around IT very, very well. And think about it, back then, teachers were really only just learning. Oh. Um, and they had no clue, they were learning the basics. And here are these kids that had grown up with IT and they, knew, they know how to code, they knew everything, right? So the principal called these two boys and says, okay, here's the deal. You got two options. Number one, we expel you today. Number two, you come and work for us and you, you help us as part of your school program, you kind of help us on the side, take back control of our network because we have no control of it right now. Um, and so they opted for option two. <laughs> I can imagine. And they found out pretty quickly that even though they were as savvy as they were about IT, trying to manage 350 other kids that were savvy at IT and stop them from doing silly things um, on the network was, was next to impossible. So they had, when I met them, they had developed a piece of software. It was a very rudimentary piece of software at the time, but clever, where it was taking an event log of everything that the students were doing on their computers and it was dumping it to a screen and someone actually had to sit there and watch the screen and and point like go catch that kid in that room doing this go catch that kid in that room doing this like serious stuff right but they the schools had to pay for someone to sit there and watch the screen the whole school day to make use of this this software okay um so wind the clock forward we we you know we put two and two together. These guys came and joined me um, and, and my business partner at the time, and, and, and we put together DTEX. Um, the, you know, I'm going to try and fast track that a little bit. And, and so we, you know, we, were, we, we were very successful at raising um, state government funding. State government got behind us. That, back in those days, they had a really cool program called the SA Business Centre, and they identified a handful of, of companies some were in tech, some were in, in food and wine, some were in um, uh, agriculture, for example. You know, a handful of companies in each of those sectors that they would take under their wing and provide funding and support for, mentorship, et cetera, et cetera. And that really, really helped us. But where we hit a brick wall, and, and this, is, this is a point that I'd really like to, to dive into with you if you're open to it, is, is business culture in Australia back then and even today to a certain extent is is very close-minded and very very conservative. Yeah. Let's say. Well, um, I, I, I could imagine back in the year two thousand, uh, with a what business you particularly had, but you know, there's a some to respect that that stigma is still here. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a, I've lived in Queensland, where you know they they sort of encourage that you've you've done well, you've worked hard. You've got some toys to play with because you've busted your whole guts out doing it. Where I don't quite get the same feeling here in South Australia. I, I unfortunately think there is that tall poppy syndrome. And mm. you're talking 20 years ago. I yes. think it's a bit better now. Yes. But I can imagine back then. It Look, change change is definitely upon us. Um, but that that tall poppy syndrome still sticks around. And it, look, it's 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 generations and generations that have built that up. And and maybe some of it comes from our British roots, right? But at the end of the day, if we are going to be competitive in the technology space, if we're going to be competitive on the global scene, we need to take a page out of the books of Silicon Valley where you know we encourage each other to work hard. We encourage each other to think outside the box. And more importantly, we encourage each other to fail. And when we fail, instead of going, ah, oh, they were bound to fail, um, and when they succeed, say, oh, they must have done something untoward to get up there, yeah. right? We need to pat on the back the ones that are getting up there, as long as they're doing it through legitimate means, yeah. obviously. Um, 
And we need to reach down and help those people back up that have failed because if we don't learn to fail and fail fast, we will not compete on the global scene in innovation. And today, you know, we're very, very lucky here in South Australia that we have a government that's actually getting behind true innovation and actually putting their money where their mouth is. Federal government has stood up and paid attention to that, so they're diving in too. But look, government can only facilitate. If industry doesn't lead, we will be forever in this mind state of where's my handout? Yeah. You know, the dull mentality, right? And look, social social services have their place that we, we do need those things. But to encourage innovation to flourish, we actually need to get out there. We need to take the gloves off and we need to be be prepared to support each other through collaboration and more importantly, encouraging. And when I say encouraging, that means for a startup company, they need Australian businesses to come to the table and say, hey, we're prepared to give you a shot. It might not work out for us. We not, might not buy your kit. We might not buy your services, but hey, we're prepared to give you a shot because you're trying yeah. and we want to support you to do yeah. that. And there's no doubt that's the feeling that you've got. Um, what about did you, you get on the Entrepreneurship Advisory Board? Or you're so, a member of the yeah, so, so yeah, is that, so is that, that recent or is that back then? That's recent. So so I've it's almost coming up to a year now. Um, it's the first uh, entrepreneurship advisory board we we put together the office of the chief entrepreneur here about a year ago, um, and uh, and we've been tackling those challenges head on, right? Trying to change the culture, trying to bring the bring the ecosystem together to have everyone working together. And you know, if you talk about cybersecurity as just one slice of the innovation pie. Um, lots of organisations in Australia have had cybersecurity um, projects, in a, you know, um, you know, plans and, and, and things that they want to do because they realise cyber is important. But the problem is everyone's been working in silos. So what we're doing instead of we're actually reinventing the wheel over and over again, and we're not and we're doing the same things in complete silos. Whereas if we came together. Uh, and we brought a more collaborative environment, then we don't need to double up. We can actually support each other and do much more and move the needle forward a lot quicker. And so one of the things I'm very proud of is um, uh, one, of, one of the the, the initiatives that's come out of the Office of the Chief Entrepreneur is um, the launch of the new Australian Cyber Collaboration Centre. So as you may have heard, and I know you spoke to Flavia um, recently, you know, we have uh, been really kind of landing some big wins here in Adelaide, particularly at Lot 14. You know, the Australian Space Agency is a big announcement. Well, the next one is going to be in July. We'll be opening the doors officially for the Australian Cyber Collaboration Centre. Um, and that uh, has funding from state government and federal government and a whole bunch of, you know, big global corporations that are getting behind that collaboration initiative to actually break down those silos and start working together to solve problems of national security interest. Very, very exciting. So that, to me, uh, the internet, and call it whatever you want, obviously it's brought the economy, to well, the world, the globe, the global economy together, or the mm -hmm. global connection together. There's a saying for I can't quite recall off the top of my head, but the reality is that's actually what you're saying you need in cybersecurity is to actually collaborate together, which is what you're doing and mm -hmm. you're starting to do. And I think obviously we're both pretty proud South Australian people and it's really good to see that something's actually happening here, mm -hmm. which gives us that opportunity to be on the forefront and call it luck. Yes. It's exactly what you're doing, but it wasn't all that easy because as a mate, you were a good friend for a while and then you took off. 
I didn't. I, I didn't stop being your mate just for the record. But then you then you you left, and because of what the business you were in, you you had to go to Silicon Valley, and you had to present the dream, no different than uh, tens of thousands of other businesses in Silicon Valley. How did you find that experience as a young, you know, twenty-year-old kid going over there? Um, you know, just starting your own business. I mean, that would have been quite daunting. Yeah, it was, look, not being the sharpest tool in the shed, <laughs> I, I, I took the longest journey to, uh, to Silicon Valley that you can possibly imagine, right? So, so as a young entrepreneur um, trying to make it in the business world, it's always about the cash, right? Yeah. And it's always about... You know, how am I going to make the next paycheck? You know, that's you know, that's the startup world. Every yep. everyone that's ever done a startup before of any shape or size, they know that's the that's the initial beginning of the journey. And and by the way, even when you're 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 grown up, you're still always, you know, continually raising capital to grow the business more and more and more. Um but look, at the beginning it was particularly tough. And, you know, when I was, you know, when I raised my first little bit of funding, professional funding, you know, of 450,000 Aussie dollars, my competitors in the US were raising 20 million US, right? So you know what that does. Like it puts them on steroids instantly. You know, it takes us completely out of the game. And And especially when you don't have you know, customers that are actually, not not necessarily even buying and paying customers, but, but customers that are actually trying and testing your technology and providing the feedback about, you know, you're, you're heading in the right direction, but these are the things that you need to work on. That is the most valuable thing for a startup. And and we just got knocked back by everyone here in Australia and that and that forced us to go overseas. So we, we, first, we first went to Malaysia, which is where we raised our first, you know, VC money from a big bank over there. You know, we then ended up having to go to, to London, and that's where we really grew the business. Is where you know where we really kind of started that's right. hitting it that's out of the right. park. That's right. That's right. So you went to London first, then you went to. That's the right. After yeah. That. Okay. yeah, yeah, That's right. So you you do it. How long's this journey taking? So from the time you had to leave Australia. Yeah. So we left Australia, um, two thousand and five, uh, and then we um, then we moved to London in two thousand and and seven. And the worst possible time, look, wind the clock back, starting this business in 2000 was three months before the big tech bubble burst, yep. right? So worst time ever to start a tech company. <laughs> so we hit that recession right from day dot. Yep. So that, that took us, you know, we were starting at zero, we went into the negatives. <laughs> that was how we started off. We then, we then ended up landing in London 2007. We were doing really well in that first year. Then the the bubble burst and the GFC hits, right? Worst place to be on the planet at that time. All the banking industry, government, all going down. We came back from that. We bounced back from that. That was a really tough time. Um, And we bounced back from that. And then, you know, 2010, we had a really strong business starting to build. Um, And then 2013, um, you, you may or may not have heard of a company in the US called FireEye. Yeah. But they were in 2013. They went IPO, and they were the biggest, <clears throat> biggest IPO in cybersecurity of all time uh, back then. I remember reading the newspaper and thinking, "Geez, why can't why can't that be me?" Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's you. That's the goal. <laughs> that's <there>. Why <laughs> can't that be us? Um, and uh, and lo and behold, a couple of months later, the guys <laughs> the guys that invested in FireEye Series A, B, and C investors reached out to us in London and said, "Look." 
you know, we've just exited this business and, and, and we like what you're doing. Um, you know, the whole balancing privacy and security thing is a big deal right now. Uh, you've managed to land some big, big, you know, big heavy accounts and deliver well we'd like to come out and visit you in london so one of them came out met with our customers and then you know the rest is history 2014 we moved to the bay area we raised our first 15 million dollars us and then and then we've been off to the races ever since and and that's kind of the the how we got there so what what's what's your when you look back at it and there's lots of people that look up to what you're doing in the cyber you know security arena what advice can you give to someone that is looking to acquire VC money on a large scale? Well, I mean, there's there's lots of things to think about, right? And and you want to be if you're going to go raise VC, you want to be doing it for all the right reasons. Um, and, and so, you know, now actually one of the things that I'm I'm really impressed about here in Australia is we're actually starting to develop maturity in our venture capital industry. Um, I think it's the very first time that we're starting to get a, a mature industry down here, one that can compete on the global scale, and that's really important for us. And and one of the things that we're trying to do here with Lot 14 at the moment in the space arena, in the AI and machine learning arena, in the cyber arena, is actually attract Silicon Valley down here, and we've actually started to do that. They're actually paying attention to what we're doing now. But but raising VC is a big it's a big it's a, a big change in your life right having to answer to, you know the machine that's that's pushing you harder and harder to grow 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 and and sometimes grow at all costs yeah. right so a VC is not a VC picking the right VCs is very very important um, it, it's not just about money it's it's about what they bring to the table and it's also about the personality sitting around the table too that's that's very very important so you know serious consideration. Um, and I would say if you're an early stage company, there are, there are stepping stones to take before you get to the VC. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's an important consideration too. So picking the right person, it, I mean, you can say that with everything in life, can't you? Can't you? Sure. It's about knowing who you're dealing with or, sure. and what you're doing. Sure. <clears throat> so let's, let's break it up a bit. We've got, we've got a robotic arm that's in our warehouse. It's one of seven of these... Uh, randomly selected robotic arms in the world. So when it makes a mistake picking on our line, it sends a sends a photo to the other arms around the world. That you know that is pretty clever. It's using AI technology. Can that get hacked? Is it connected to the internet? Yes. Well, you know the answer already. That was a loaded question. Yeah, I just <laughs> want to know. Like, is you know, I guess it comes down to if someone wants to be hacked or if someone is trying to hack something. What, what would be some of the reasons that you see hackers do things in that you've seen in your time? You would have seen a lot of hacking, all right? I'm, I'm just assuming. Yep. Uh, what, what is it that you think a hacker looks for? Or there, are there different hackers, like, you know, black hat, white hat, like, you know, blue hat? What, what, what do you see they're looking for? Or are they just looking for a vulnerability? So there's every colour of the rainbow hat okay. right now, right? right? right. So <laughs> it's moved but, on a but, lot. <laughs> but, 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 but let me tell you, I mean, you're asking exactly the right question. And today, unfortunately, yeah, a couple of days ago, I got off the phone with a principal of a high school here, which um, unfortunately got um, attacked by a piece of ransomware, which, you know, completely locked him out. And, you know, this is happening all the time to everyone. Yep. And that's because hackers have become less choosy. You know, the bulk of the hackers that are out there, it's all about money. 
for most of them. I'm not talking about nation state actors or people that are disgruntled and activists. That's a different situation, but they're the, they're, they're the edge cases. By and large, the hacking community out there is out to make money and they're out to make it as quickly as they possibly can. So they are searching only for vulnerabilities. They are looking for holes and ways they can get in and ways that they can exploit people on the other side of that vulnerability. That's literally what it's all about. So if you're an, an individual or if you're an organization, you want to become the most expensive target for them. That's the race. Yep. It's an arms race. Let's not, let's not be confused about that. Right? If, if you make it more expensive, if, if you, John Paul, are more expensive to hack into than me, then who are they going to hack? Yeah. Right? Yep. Simple. And nowadays, they use AI to do most of the hacking too, right? So it's not a person behind a keyboard. They're just sitting they're, there, they're punching just, away. Yeah, they're on the dark web. They're buying tools that they can just fire off and automatically randomly hit as many nodes as they can all across the internet and see what comes back. Literally, that's, that's, that, that's what it's all about. So I've, I've had a look at the dark web. I've gone... I don't want to hear any more about that. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> But I, I have seen where people are selling, like, oh, I've got the lime for the corona. Indeed. Because we're in Mexico. <laughs> it's corona time. I, I, have, um, I, I have seen how they're selling software for things, right? Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's, you know, they're selling visa cards and these sites probably not legitimate, I'm assuming. Uh, but they're selling, like, details in so you can pick up a 1,000 people's email addresses and I have seen software that says that it does this, this, and this. Like, I just looked at that as I would be skeptical. Wouldn't I be skeptical of buying a piece of software off someone that's hacked it for me to use to hack or not? Is it like a is it is it a fair trading field that I'm happy to get that information, but I'm happy to get rid of it and then not follow it? You know, would they have a backdoor entry into it? Where- so you you are clearly not an established dark web user. No, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, let's be clear are, about you are, that. You are a random tourist at best. Mm. Because if you were, if you were um, someone that spends a lot of time in that arena for specific purposes, then you would know where to go. And, 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 and literally, for those that don't know, the dark web is a full-on business ecosystem. It is a marketplace. It is a marketplace where you can buy and sell anything that you want, illegal or otherwise. Um, And, you know... Well, you can trade shares. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you can trade shares in in dark dark web organisations. Yep. That are very, very successful. And these are organisations that buy and sell personal details as their core business. Uh, Is... Is it hard for the average person to get their head around that, guys, you can actually quite easily go onto the dark web and buy any drug and any weapon of choice and even things that yeah, harm people? Do you think the average person, like, do you think, oh, yeah, I know about it, but they think it's too far-fetched and not unbelievable? Or do you think Well, most- I, I think that's probably, I think that's probably true, but it's stupid. Like, I mean, it's just pure naivety. It's just an, uh, it's just a, I, I, I can't understand it. And that's because I'm, like, I, I know it implicitly, yeah. right? And, and you know, we're, we're constantly having to deal with the fallout from, from individuals and organizations that fall foul of that. And, and, and it, and it's, it's scary stuff, um. People ask me why, you know, why I don't have Facebook or, you know, Twitter yeah. or Instagram. 
let alone LinkedIn. Yeah. And you know, my marketing team still gives me shit about not having LinkedIn, but I'm like, no, I don't need it. Like I, if I want to meet someone, I'll meet them. Yeah. You know, and and maybe I'm lucky. I'm, I'm lucky. I have the the ability to go and meet people, right? Um, you know, from all different walks of life and circles. But but the point is, the second you have stuff on the internet, it's there for anyone to get at. Whether you know whatever protections you put around it, there is always someone that can get to it. Um, and so that that worries me. And and rightly so. I let's go back into. So we're talking a bit about cybersecurity. The other, the uh, when I usually catch up with you, you 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 have a bit of a rule about no one's allowed to have their phones on them, <laughs> and and it, call it crazy, but I was recently in Japan and one of the guys had one of these massage guns. Have you mm-hmm. ever used them? They're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Never typed it. Never did a search. Never did anything. Then all of a sudden, Instagram every third ad is these massage guns because obviously it, I believe the phone listens. Is that uh, an assumption that you think is true or do you think the algorithm's just so clever it knows when I've typed in things it just remembers that? It could be both. Uh, and it could be comparing and contrasting between those two points of knowledge. Uh, oh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a very politician politician art so I'll, I'll let it go because there's no doubt this fucking thing listens and, <laughs> and there's no doubt in my mind and it's it's actually it's quite interesting to see when you are interested in something and you type it in whether it's an instagram it, it really knows and it starts to tailor it's actually very clever and when i talk about really knowing like i've been on tiktok I've, I've, it's it's doing my head in because that algorithm on tiktok is unbelievably unbelievably scary of mm. how accurate it is. And my mate, he likes Asian chicks and he likes four-wheel drives. And, he <laughs> <laughs> and his TikTok feed is full of Asian chicks. In four-wheel drives. In, <laughs> in four-wheel drives. <laughs> oh, man. And it is, right? So, so like, I've got no females on my TikTok. <laughs> but <laughs> well now <laughs> let's not look so but you know it, it, it sort of goes oh yeah 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 then because the, you can't skip on TikTok you have to watch it very clever algorithm very it's it's the smartest out of all of them I'm just about to wean off bang has got me again I'm just about to wean off bang it's like a crack addict TikTok. yeah 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 and it's very clever and the data they are collecting Chinese owned company um, not allowed to use the actual app in China. Mm-hmm. The data they must be collecting is frightening. What sort of data do you think? Do you think data collection or big data? You know, it's been talked about for probably since you've been in the business, but they're really starting to talk about how important that data is and how many data fields is attached to one person, for instance. Uh, well, I mean, that is that is the name of the game, right? And uh, unfortunately, I mean, you you've heard the. I mean, you must have heard the the, the story about Cambridge Analytica. Well, I am fascinated, and I'm going to do a Netflix plug here. The Great Hack Netflix. It is the best documentary I've seen about how your data, which you've given up, and let's face it, you talk about things you're not on, and you have a look at you're on a platform, you're on it for free, there's a billion people on that platform and they're all doing it for free 
people still don't even realise that their information has been sold all around the world. And to me, that great hack, um, the Dartage, yeah. the, the Cambridge Analytica, when I watched that, I that blew my mind away. And I thought I had some ideas. So... What's your? Have you? Have you would have? You would have been in. You actually would have been. No, you would have been in Silicon Valley then. You wouldn't I have was been in, in Silicon London. Valley. Um, What's your? Have you seen the movie? Or have yeah, you seen I've, I've seen the movie, and I know, I know a lot of a lot more about the background than just what's in the movie, right? Um, well, haven't you come to the right place? Yes, indeed. Can you talk about it? Well, I, I will talk about yeah. it because this is something I'm, I'm especially passionate about. Um, you know, and there's only one way for us to control it. Um, which is by controlling the amount of information that we share, we as an individual, we as citizens of whichever country, choose to share online with any provider. Because once you do, it's out there. And then you are putting your trust in that provider and every provider. So provider, you're not talking platform. You're talking like a telecom provider. Uh, or are you talking... I'm talking in general, right? Uh, so I, I see I, I see Facebook as a provider, uh, as, a provider. as well, okay, right? Cool. Because they, yeah. they are a provider of a service and you share your data with them. Um, it just so happens that people share much more than just their credit card details and their buying patterns with Facebook. They share a hell of a lot more information than that. And some people are as, uh, silly enough to share their whereabouts, to share you know, where they're going next, how long they're going to be away from home. There's a whole range of things which... You know, thankfully, my kids have grown up being very, very smart about and, and thinking twice before they put stuff online because there's a lot of kids that aren't taught that. And, and, and that's one of my biggest fears, actually, for the next generation is if we don't teach them about the importance of their own personal privacy online, then, you know, who knows how bad it's going to get because it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's no question about that. So before talking about the great hack, cyberbullying mm-hmm. specifically for kids... Like you, know, you, you've got young kids. I've got young kids under the age of ten. How, how do you think they're the only way that I believe they can deal with it is education, or there, there's no way of blocking. Full stop. Is there no. on every single platform all the time? Is is there a way that that could be stopped? Or what do you think? How do you think cyberbullying can not destroy which it already has i'm assuming it not i'm assuming it has destroyed many kids lives yep Uh, many kids have killed themselves because of social media yes how do you think it's going to be in another five years time because i think it's already really bad well in another five years time i i think that depends on exactly what we do today i think we're at a pivotal moment here where we can make a difference and we can change the outcome for five years from now but we have to remember that we have to reverse the last 10 years of what's been happening where this generation of children have grown up since the age of one, two, three years old on a screen, yep. right? And in some cases haven't been taught about what to think about before you actually put your finger on the, on the, on the glass, right? And, and swiping left and swiping right and swiping up and swiping down. And, and that is a problem. And if we are just going to rely on the educators to do the job, yeah. we will lose the fight yep. because it starts at home yep. and it starts with the parents. And if the parents aren't prepared to get educated about this and if the parents aren't prepared to actually take an interest in their child's online screen activities, and that's not just like I had this conversation with my son last night. 
Yeah, but dad, I'm doing my homework. I don't care what you're doing on that screen. How long today have you spent on that screen? It's not whether it's productive, non-productive. It's eyes on glass, yep. right? Versus eyes out in the world, you know, actually getting out there in the world and meeting people and doing things. It's a real, that social interaction and that interaction with the planet Earth is critical and, and important for it to be balanced. But when they're on a screen, the content that they're, they're exposed to, the people that they're communicating with is very, very, very important. So is there ways of protecting that? Like I look at my kids, they're, they're, on, uh, they're on YouTube Kids. Yep. Um, so that has no ads, but you know, there was that back going back. Oh, I forgot the name of this character that people thought was, um, it'll come to me, real scary character. The halfway through this thing said, like, grab your teddy bear, put it in the oven, like it was, uh, uh, it'll, it'll come to this. So people were, this was hysteria, right? Talking about the platform. And I was like, so, you know, halfway through it would be a Goldilocks. And then, you know, you so see, you watch it. Oh yeah, it's Goldilocks. And then. Ten minutes in, Goldilocks like li- literally massacres everyone on the screen, and it, would, it was some psychopath was putting it on. Apparently, I call bullshit, right? Didn't see it in my own eyes. I only saw like this is what happened, and people are on Momo. That's what it was. It was Momo, and people were up in arms about this Momo character. And then someone that I, a friend of mine, posted, "Ah, oh, this just happened." And I said, "Did you see it with your own eyes?" Mm. And they they then go, oh, no, a friend of mine saw it. Like, so how much of it's bullshit? But I'm assuming that's a real-life case, right? And my girls are young, really young. Mm-hmm. So I look at, I go forward five years, and you must be seeing it now. Your kids have access to any, they're, pro, they're more connected now than we ever were. Yeah, and you we used to have to bloody ring yep. each other on a landline, which... <laughs> Mate, you know, then you have to you run the gauntlet of what parent's going to be there and you sit around the corner with your parent listening to every single thing that you say, yeah. even worse when you're trying to tune chicks. <laughs> All right? Terrible, right? Terrible when you're trying to tune chicks. And everyone did that from our era. And now it's, it's, on their, it's on their watches, it's on their phones. They could be communicating with, you know, a fucking pedophile for all I fucking know. Yep. And we don't know. Yep. And these people that groom these kids, mm-hmm. they're very clever. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not silly at what they do. Yep. And as much as I think you and I, I think we're street smart people. Mm-hmm. I think we pick up on things a lot quicker than, you know, probably yeah, lucky for year. me. My kids seem like they're book smart. Good on them. Yep. But they might not pick up on it as quick as someone that realises, hang on, they're the not sort of questions you should be asking. I mean, it happens all the time. It's happening every day. Every day. How do you think that stops? Well, okay, so I can only tell you about the, the kind of principles that I adopt in my home. Yeah, I want to hear those. Like, so my son is, he's like an encyclopedia. So <laughs> the other day... My, my nine-year-old daughter comes up to me and she asks me, how does lightning get made? I'm like, well, it's in the clouds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's like, Wrong, she's like yeah, um, I don't get it. And I'm like, yeah, look, I don't get it either. It's a really good question. Go ask your brother. Yeah. Because he's, he's a 15-year-old, encycl- literally an encyclopedia. Like, there's almost nothing you can't ask him about trivia or fact that he doesn't know. And the reason he knows that stuff 
is because he spends time on YouTube and he yeah. spends time online researching interesting stuff of all different kinds of nature. Yeah. Now, I never want to stop that because that's made him, that's given him an ability to kind of soak in all that knowledge in a way that in our generation we could never, no matter how smart we were as kids, yeah. not that you and me were very smart as kids, <laughs> but, but talking about even the smart ones, I mean, today's a different ball game. So I never want to curb that. I want to give him the opportunity to be able to do whatever he wants to do and thinks is right. And so for that reason, I don't install software that restricts what he can do. I mean, aside from porn and all that kind yeah, of stuff, yeah. which if they're smart enough, they can get around anyway. Yeah, yeah. But the idea is... Is there porn on the internet? Well, some areas of the internet, John Paul, oh, okay. you, you, you probably don't need to worry yeah. about that. So the thing that, the thing that I want to encourage in them before, long before they become 18 and they can make their own decisions in life, um, is to be armed with the ability to make their own decisions and to make valued judgments about things. So rather than controlling what they do, it's teaching them to think for themselves and think, is this good for me? Is this good for other people? Is this going to affect me in a negative or a positive way? And is it going to affect anybody else in a negative and positive way? If, if we can teach them that train of thought and get and teach them at a young age to make that kind of a decision, which is a difficult decision for a young person yeah. to understand and to make, because especially because there's so many outside influences that, that want you to think a certain way so that somebody else can make money out of it, yeah. that's the complication. Now, if we can get that train of thought in, that's the first thing. The second thing is never assume that because we're giving them that train of thought that they are gonna be able to make all the right decisions because things are gonna come up, which is gonna pique their interest, which can take them down a dark hole involuntarily. So the rule that I have in my house is, is no screens in bedrooms. Yep. All right. And, and at, a, at a certain point when they move transition from teenage to, to adulthood, that will become a different situation, yeah. which is at the point where you want them to be able to make their own decisions as clearly as they possibly can. But at especially at a very, very young age, like no screens in rooms for me is an absolute must. Yeah. Because you need to be able to see at all times, at spot check moments, without look, l acting like you're looking over their shoulder 24 by yeah, 7. Yeah. Well, and, and let them feel comfortable about what they're viewing in our presence. That, that's really, uh, for me, that's a big one. All right. That, and that's that is great advice. No screen in room. Pretty simple. It's pretty too. simple. Because it's it's very easy for them to just go down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. I see it just on the YouTube, and you know they end up looking at some weird stuff. Yep. And they're just pressing the next thing. So, yep. so I can understand that. That's a, that's a great piece of advice. And so just 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 in line with that, the the one thing that has really worked well for us in our house is, you know, when it comes to close to bedtime or you know sort of seven eight o'clock at night, all screens go in a drawer including phones, you know, and, and that drawer gets locked and it gets opened the next day So when they need those devices back. So cyberbullying, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to get off cyberbullying because I think it's a major issue. How, how does someone, you know, should there be very harsh penalties for people, I call them keyboard warriors, mm -hmm. should there trolls out there, you know, it's always something, you can never please anyone. And, and the hardest thing dads had to deal with with Drake's is that no matter what you do, you're always going to have someone having a, having having a, a go. Having a go. Yep. And they are more inclined to have a go as a keyboard warrior 
than they are face to face. And the amount of complaints we've got when you reply and said, let's have a chat about it, they don't want to talk. Quite happy to type whatever they want. But when yep. you actually say to them, how can we make it better? That's all we want to do as a yeah, business. Yeah. They don't want to talk about it. Yeah, of course. So, so for us, how, how do you, how do you, do you think that those people need to be dealt with? Do you think they can ever be dealt with? Or do you just think that's a part of life? You're not going to be able to get rid of. Uh, and I guess there's a difference between someone bullying till, um, until someone kills themselves mm-hmm. or someone that's just having a go because they, they want to have their point of view. So there is a difference, I think. Um, I, I don't think you're ever going to get away from the trolls that want to have a go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For whatever reason they feel motivated to have a go, and that could be for some sort of personal gain or just because they're twisted, right? Yeah. Um, or they have, a, they have a genuine grievance, right? Yeah. So, so I don't think you're ever going to get away from that, nor do I actually think that we need to, you know, because everyone's... Everyone's got the right to their own opinion. It's just online, it's easier to have an opinion these days and for other people to see the opinion that you've got. Um, I think, though, that when you cross the line and you do something intentionally to hurt somebody, um, of whatever age, there must be a consequence. Yeah. I, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. And, and I think, look, I think that we have a long way to go as a society to be able to dole out the punishment that's fit for the crime. And, uh, you know, I'd like to, maybe if you're okay with it, I'd like to elaborate on a, on a very, yeah. very real, very current situation. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the situations that we're dealing with as DTEX as, as, as a company right now, we, we, we lead some pretty um, serious investigations for some very big brand organisations. Um, one of the companies that we work for um, here in Australia is called AMP. I'm sure everyone's heard of AMP. Yep. Um, the reason why I can talk about this, it's very rare that I can talk about a, a, a specific investigation and the reason why is because it was front page of the news. Um, this happened last year where more and more um, Australian organisations, particularly ASX listed organisations and Australian government is becoming concerned about foreign nationals Um, infiltrating our organisations and and stealing our data, whether that be IP from our universities or um, personal data from, you know, Australian ASX-listed companies. And and here was a situation where we were able to detect a a Chinese national that was legitimately working inside AMP as an employee. Um, And their their day-to-day job was to go through data and clean that data because there's a lot of stuff inside that data records about people that don't, just don't need to be there. So cleaning up those data records, that was that was their job. But we were able to actually see that because we look for behaviours, we look for unusual behaviours and things that people really shouldn't be doing and, and, and being able to dive down into that to investigate those things further. And we saw this particular individual was in a very unusual way looking at the records regularly, like every day for a period of days, looking at the, the records of 23 specific Australian citizens and then starting to pull down data related to those 23 specific Australian citizens, uh, including driver's licence details, passport records, okay, et cetera, that's what et cetera. I was gonna ask. What, what, what are I actually pulling down? Like if someone followed me for a year, fuck, they'd be horrified. <laughs> they, they would wonder what the fuck is this guy doing i thought you didn't but, know that porn existed on the internet jp but i mean but, but, but so but to me okay so amp they have a lot of data data is it data or data it depends if you come from the us or australia mate data 
data. 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 That's it. Um, so, so they're pulling down information. So that was unusual behaviour. Mm-hmm. Is that what you? So your system said this is kind of unusual. No, no, not pulling down the info. What? What? It was a string of things that led to it being an unusual behaviour. The fact that this individual was looking at very specific records and only those records regularly over a short period of time, yeah. um, when they usually look at a whole raft of different records to do their job, was unusual. And then when we saw them bringing it down into a, you know, aggregating that data to one yep. place, those combination of things were extremely unusual. And so that triggered an alert in our system. And then, and then when we saw that and we raised it with, with AMP, we were led to immediately bring in um, the AFP, Australian Federal Police. Yep. Um, and so we started that investigation and we were actually able to, so obviously that individual had found out that something had triggered. Yep. Um, and How? We're not How? 100% sure, but he, he look... A tip-off? Maybe he just suspected something. Maybe someone said something to him, right? Yep. But, but at the end of the day, he disappeared, and we were actually able to catch him as he was trying to board the plane with his wife and, and child um, back to China. Fuck yeah! Well done. And we caught him at the border. <laughs> Wouldn't be in a hurry to get to China at the moment, right? And the first thing, and the first thing, and the first thing that was, for the first thing that we uh, that he said was, "I'm not guilty." <laughs> Straight and then, away. And then they and then they showed him the data, yeah. and he was like, "Yeah, no, nah, I'm guilty." Right? Wow. Now is that easy? the point that I'm trying to get to, the point that I'm trying to get to is here. We prosecuted this individual. He was deliberately trying to steal records of Australian citizens. Very serious crime. Yeah. We prosecuted in court. He was found guilty, and guess what the penalty was? Oh, don't tell me nothing. One hundred and fifty hours of community service. See, so if you go and if you go and search AMP, DTEX, AFP, you will find this article on you know all of the newspapers. We'll put it in the link. And the picture that's there is this guy with a massive smile on his face as he walks out of court. And guess what? He got on a plane and he left the country. So did he do the community service? He did not. No. See, that so okay. is a problem. So that's espionage. Yeah, that's espionage. That's yeah. industrial espionage. And, and, and what was he planning to do with it? We don't know. But, but, uh, but someone up there does know. So why, why doesn't that come with the crime? Like, you know, if that happened in America, if that happened in China, you'd probably be executed. Maybe. Maybe. Well, they, <laughs> mate, mate, that, mate, Chinese have added plastic and killed kids and they got executed, right? Yep. So to me, if you if that happened in any other country, I'm assuming the penalty would be far worse than... You'd, you'd assume wrong. So, so unfortunately, like even in the US, the penalty does not fit the crime unless it's to do with espionage against the US government. That's a very different story and there's very harsh penalties against that. But if you... <coughs> are caught stealing from a company, personal records, personal data, look, probably, and it should be, a much more stiffer crime than, than this guy got. Yeah. But it's definitely not to the level that it should be right now that it's actually going to deter people from doing these crimes, right? So still today, the human mind state is if you commit a physical crime, it is far worse and requires a far harsher sentence Right. Yeah. Yep. If you walk yep. in, if you walk into like, your corner store with a plastic gun, and you get caught, yep, 
you will go to jail. Yes. Right? Yep. How is that more serious than trying to steal the records of 23 Australian citizens and their personal data and take it to a foreign country to do God knows what with? And you plead guilty and you're found guilty and you're prosecuted as such. Yeah. It just it doesn't make any sense to me. No, it, it, I, I almost can't believe it. Right. And so, and so then you can start to pivot across to, you know, child pornography. You can pivot across to all of these cyber crimes of different types of shapes and sizes. And in my mind, we are far from having the, the punishment fit the crime. And until we do so, you are not going to deter people from taking that criminal route. Because there's criminally minded people out there, you'll never change that. That's yeah. one thing that we know. Yeah. Is when you find somebody that's done something criminally minded, the chances of, you know, turning them away from that are not as good as the chances of them returning to that, right? So so we've got to be able to, you know, pin them down for what they've done. Yeah, I, and that's crazy. I actually can't believe you can just... It seems like they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I guess I recently watched Snowden. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you can... My uptake from that took information that wasn't his, wasn't meant to take that information, didn't agree with what he was doing, and then used that information and gave that to the press because he felt the press needed to know. I mean, that's obviously a touchy subject, but it's a little bit different than someone saying, hey, I'm stealing... I work for this company. I'm stealing this information. Is it different? Or is it the same? Well, Bear that, in mind, that, he's been exiled or, you know, so he's, he's obviously... I don't think he'd be in a hurry to go back to America somehow. Um, no. <laughs> so, you know, is that any different? Or is it because it's cyber and they go, well, you don't know how that affects people? I'm not sure. I think it morally... I don't think people... I don't think the world has the answer. Well, the world doesn't have the answer yet. And, you you know, it's a, it, it is, as you said, it's a very touchy sh subject and, and, and one that... You know, I hesitate to dive into too much because there's a lot of a lot of depth you need to go into to yeah. analyze that situation. But but you know, it, it brings up the the case of the whistleblower, right? Yeah. Now, you know, putting aside Snowden for a second, you know, oh, there the are there, there are there are situations where the public needs to know about certain things that they just wouldn't otherwise know about, and then you know. Does the does the does does that argue the case that there should be protections for whistleblowers? Right, you can make your own decisions about that. But at the end of the day, that is not the same thing as blatantly, without any intention for good, um, stealing people's data. Yeah. Right. You know, if you're if you're stealing IP to make personal financial gain out of that. Or if you're stealing people's personal data to sell it on the dark web, right? That's a whole different ballgame, in my in my view, in my view. You know, and there there should be no debate. Yeah. You know, the 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 Snowden thing and the whistleblower thing. There's a hell of a lot of debate around that, and I yeah. don't really want to get into it because I have my own personal views. But well, when I it, find that hard to believe. You what, have that I have personal views. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! I, you won't be able to tell in this podcast. I can tell you, Mark definitely has a personal view, and he takes no prisoners in letting people know about it. So I'm happy to move on from that. Let's talk about stealing, because um, it's something I actually didn't do much when I was a kid. But the reality is, you you love cars 
mm-hmm. you you were lucky enough to I don't know how you weaseled your way into a Formula One deal with the Williams team, mm-hmm. uh, Williams F1 team, and you had your software set up on the in the oh, it must be a big team. I'm just guessing hundreds of people working uh, on data, um, data, data, <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> so so hundreds of people working on it. And one of the things that I know that you, you did is that when you started, when you rolled your, your, your platform out with the Williams team, what did you uncover? Did you uncover anything? So you're talking the Pinnacle F1, you know, they're in the top five teams in mm-hmm. the world. They, their data is crucial for every decision they make in the car. Like yep. Every single split, sec- you know, split, split second, how things are bolted tight, tyre pressures, what's coming back through the car, live telemetry, not to mention all the stuff when they build the car, what aerodynamics, like, you know, it's not just a race car. It looks pretty flash, but to be at the top of anything comes with lots of restrictions. What, what, was your, what happened when you went on to Williams, other than you would have been pretty fucking excited? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're into your cars, JP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit. So actually, uh, Williams wasn't the first team that we worked with in Formula One. We worked with Red Bull Racing and a few others as well. Um, but Williams is a, is a particularly interesting case. And, you know, for those of you that don't know, Williams is much more than a Formula One company. In fact, they drive the biggest revenues, not from the Formula One team, but through Williams Advanced Engineering. And Williams Advanced Engineering is a fascinating company. If you guys get the time, look it up because it is truly fascinating. What they're doing is they're taking the research um, and development activities from Formula One and they're actually applying those technologies into real everyday life. For example, the KERS system, the kinetic yep. energy recovery system, the braking system and, and its ability to recover energy and store that energy and use it for different things. Um, they've taken that to Volvo. Uh, and Volvo now uses it in all of their new truck fleet to, to save fuel on, on their trucks. So Pretty cool, the right? The Tesla has the ERS, the electronic recovery system. Mm-hmm. And when you take your foot off the accelerator, mm-hmm. it's regenerative braking, mm-hmm. charging battery. Yep. Like it's, incre- it's, it's actually yeah, it's, incredible. It's, it's so incredible. And a lot of the newest technologies in the automotive field that are being applied to, you know, mass manufacturing in the automotive field is coming out of research that's done in the Formula One space. Um, and so, and Williams Advanced Engineering do a lot of that, right? They're, they're one of the okay. leaders in the All space. Right. And, yeah. and so, you know, to tell you a bit of a story that, I know these guys wouldn't mind me saying. Um, usually when you're talking about security, you're worried about people stealing stuff, right? Yeah. But let's reverse that for a second because people don't think about it. Um, one of the cool investigations that we ran for Williams when we, when we pretty close after we started working with them was they said, we're being pulled into a case where we've hired an engineer um, and, and this, is, this is the Formula One space, right? If you're an engineer in Formula One, you're always gonna be an engineer in Formula One because your qualifications are, are that and it's very, very sharp and narrow, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So you spend your life jumping from Ferrari to Williams to <laughs> yep. McLaren and then back to Ferrari again, right? That's, that's basically the, the, the roundabout. Um, and, and they had hired from another one of the race teams, I'm not gonna mention the name, they had hired this engineer and they had accused this engineer of um, stealing their IP and they were suing this engineer and they had pulled, a, pulled Williams in as a third party to that lawsuit saying, you've hired this engineer, he's stolen our IP and, t- and brought it to you. Yep. 
And so because what we do at DTEX is, is, is we, we look at the, the flow of data and, you know, and, and, and every transaction that happens with the flow of data, people that touch it, what they do with it, how they do things with it. We were at, when, when this engineer was hired by Williams, as soon as he's handed his new laptop, the first thing that gets installed on that new laptop before it gets into his hands is the DTEX software. We can see everything that happens from that point in time. And we were at, and Williams was a, ab, actually able to go into that court case and table our report and say, we categorically know that this individual did not in any way, shape or form bring that team's data into our premises. We don't know if he stole anything. Yeah. So you should ask that team if they've got evidence that he stole that thing yeah. because we've got the evidence that he didn't bring it here. And that was immediately thrown out of court because the other team didn't have the evidence to prove. It was hearsay. Um, so that's an interesting case, right? Because people don't think about, you know, and we work for some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world and, and pharmaceutical company A and pharmaceutical company B are constantly having IP battles in court about, yeah. you know, that's our formula, we came up with it first, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So our customers in that space are very, very mindful when they hire someone from a competitor that they want to know anything that touches their network that has to do with data that's come from that competitor organization and they're very very clear that they don't want that to happen um so that's a different angle on it so we talk about um you talk about that and when people leave companies it happens all the time supermarket games are no different than formula one yep is they come over to you they've got ideas and whatnot they're not meant to bring any ip stuff with them and they might bring things with them, spreadsheets or whatever. So you're telling me your your software like has the ability to track where what's come into the system, what's been pulled out of a system. To me, one of the sto- I've I heard one of your news reports is you with your software in place, you can predict when someone, or maybe not you, Moen, but your your AI can predict when someone is thinking about taking. Um, is thinking about resigning because their pattern changes from what they've always done. Is is that a bit elaborate for to talk about, or no, no, what, no, what, no, what's a way no, that no. the system? What's some keys? Like the things that you mentioned were, all of a sudden you start emailing out as less. You're not forwarding as much. You're changing your patterns of a hundred emails a day might go to seventy five. No one would ever pick that up, mm-hmm. but your system flags that, hang on, it, this is unusual activity. Hmm. Do you want a job in sales? <laughs> we're, hi- we're hiring, JP. <laughs> I just, I, because I'm fascinated. That's pretty impressive, my friend. I'm fascinated because it works in a way to trend, right? And, and, and if you can pick the patterns, and when I watch the Cambridge Analytica, because it's probably a good time to jump into that, they talked about using 15,000 data points. Mm-hmm. So basically what that meant, because I had to check out what's the data point, and basically that meant it, it, there was 15,000 things that a person had done on Facebook which can pigeonhole them into a certain category, can pigeonhole them whether they're a Trump supporter or they're an Obama supporter, can pigeonhole whether they're racist or whether they're not racist. And I was blown away with, I thought, wow, 15,000. But the more I've looked into it now, that's not 15,000 is nothing. You're talking millions of data points. Literally everything you've done on the internet is tracked and can be pigeonholed to that person does that. 100%. Wait, 
Let's just wait for Fiji, the ghost, the ghost, to, <laughs> the ghost to come. <laughs> so, so fifteen thousand uh, data points. I thought was a huge thing, right? And then the more I looked into it, we're talking about million sets of data points on an individual, and the Cambridge Analytics. It, it, it to me is the most compelling documentary I've ever seen on cybersecurity ever. Mm-hmm. And what got me was I knew this sort of stuff was happening, but to actually see a case where it happened, do you think that they are in the wrong? Cambridge Analytica? Yeah. Definitely. But Well, the data was there. Well, oh. well look, I mean, this is, this is the most touchy subject when it comes to technology, and it's morality. Yeah. It's walking the fine line of morality, yep. right? And, and there is no law that tells us what the fine line of morality is. You as a human being need to make that decision for yourself. Now, there's a lot of people in that story that had the ability to make that decision for themselves and did not make that decision. Yeah. There's a lot of individuals in that story and there's more behind that story that had the ability to make that decision and did not make the right decision. And it's clear to me you can have you're entitled to your own opinion yeah. as I am mine, but I feel very strongly about that um, because to be trawling the internet for information about how all of these millions and millions and millions of voting citizens think, yeah. and to Send swamp them with, with misinformation, which is going to specifically change their mindset for your own personal gain, in my mind, I don't know about yours, but in my mind, that is absolutely 100% not moral. It, immoral. Uh, and it, I call it, it, it is a bit of brainwashing. And at the moment, we've got coronavirus, it's 2020 in, a, in the world. <laughs> and what I'm seeing from the media, so forget about the social stuff, which is quite private, quite personalised, quite mm-hmm. targeted. Mm-hmm. This stuff I'm seeing with the coronavirus, the scaring, it's caused panic buying in the supermarkets. I've sold more toilet paper than I'll sell in a year. I've sold in a day. Like, you know, there's only so much you can shit. <laughs> I know. I still can't figure it out. <laughs> right? So, so to me, that's mass media causing this. Yeah. And we all know oh, big Fox, CNN, they all have their own personal opinion, right? I think yep. Murdoch owns one of them, right? Mm-hmm. But... When you're talking about individual, and they are individual, it's individually targeted stuff. And what Mo's alluding to is that you'd get sent ads about either being a racist or not, or if they knew you were racist by your patterns, by what you liked, what you didn't like, what you commented on. This data AI was running full analytics on what you were typing. You were saying, oh, yeah, I, I hate gays or I like gays or, you know, I'm gay. Like, and it would sit there and have that pigeonhole. Then it would say, oh, yeah, I hate black people, I hate white people. I hate and it would pigeonhole again, pigeonhole again. And it was getting so accurate that it could individualise people. Mm-hmm. That's yep. unbelievable. I, I, I watched that and went, holy hell. But here's what you might not know, JP. Um, good. This is what you're here for. So after Cambridge Analytica, yep. the world pointed the finger back at the original source of the problem, which is Facebook. Facebook. Right? Which owns Instagram now as well. A big company. Just a little bit The biggest media company in the world. Right. At this point in time. And 
so Facebook was forced to make some changes. Facebook was forced to actually show that they gave a shit about individual privacy and privacy of human beings. And as a result of that, they changed the way that they could share their data with external organisations. Yep. Yep. And Cambridge Analytica was one of thousands of companies doing this kind of stuff. Using AI to process people's personal habits online and you know the information that they share online, using all of that data to change their mindset in a certain way for a certain purpose. Not hundreds, thousands of companies, Australian companies, Chinese companies, American companies, British companies, the list goes on. Yeah. And, and those companies got shut down overnight when Facebook said, we are no longer sharing that data with you. So think about that for a second. Yeah. Cambridge Analytica is the one that had the focus spotlight put on them for obvious reasons. Well, well, Even a documentary brought out on Netflix. Well, they, what about the other thousands? Well, they, the thing about Cambridge Analytica, Analytica, they said, you, oh yeah, we were meant to not use the, da- the data anymore, right? And they continued, oh, oops, we forgot to delete it. Is it really just like, oh yeah, we forgot to delete it? Obviously they didn't forget. Well, but I mean, come on. to still use it, that, that's immoral using, but, but was it okay if, if they were still in a contract with Facebook? Would it have been okay then? And that's probably, it was okay. That's why they could do what they did. Well, that's, that's where for me, yeah, mora- morality yeah, has to yeah. take the high ground because, you know, let's face it, our system, our justice system has been designed over many hundreds of years for whatever purpose and whoever's had influence on that. You know, for right or for wrong, the laws are the laws. But does that just mean that because we're following the law, we can do anything we want within the law? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah it's very interesting. And I, I think anyone should go and watch it. I, in, in saying that, we talk about the things that they did using data. You're, you're still seeing, obviously, there's mass data collection being used. What do you think? Do you think there's a, there's a place for people to control... I, Citizen JP. Well, mate, uh, funny you should mention that because... To control my own data. So if, if you want to buy some Google, you've got to pay me 0.001 cent. If you want some Facebook, you've got to pay me. Do you think there's a way to bring back that data where me, as JP, I own all the removing of it, I own the security owner, I, I control who's using my data because I want them to. So for me... I'm a, I'm a fan of Stance Socks. So if Stance, mm-hmm. you ever listen to that, you can send socks to me, no problems to send at head office. But I talk about them all the time because I love their branding. I love what they do. I'm quite happy for Stance to use data about me. My foot size, what sock I like, thick. Oh, it's actually like the medium cushion. Thanks for that. That was uh, really important yeah, so, for me. Uh, so I don't need it too high. There's Christmas. You can just you know, lock it in now. I, I don't mind them using it. But if there's a brand that I don't like, Woolworths, I don't want them using my data for shit. So for me, I should be able to control who uses it. Is there ever going to be a place for that? Yes, there is. And so, in fact, yesterday I met with a very interesting company. This is not a plug for them. I just wanted to tell you about it. It's a company called Manitou that was formed out of New York and, and Oregon, two gentlemen out of, out of there. Met them for the first time yesterday. 
very, very interesting piece of technology that what they're proposing to do is to deploy this platform for all the large consumer-based organisations out there that have lots of consumers that they deal with where they suck in private personal like data. Like Nike. Amazon. Like, like Drake's Apple, food markets. Yeah, okay. Like everybody. Yep. Everybody that deals direct with the consumer. Yep. Giving them the platform to be able to say, there's all these data points that we have on you. You as our customer have the right to tell us what we can use and what we cannot use. Here's the table. You go and check the boxes and you say, you can have this, you can't have that. You can use this, you cannot have that. Or you can have this but not share it with others, etc., etc., etc. A pretty cool concept, something we've been needing for a very long time, where it finally gives that ability for the for the for for the end user the the citizen on the street to yeah. be able to say yeah i know you've already collected that data because maybe i was stupid enough to give it to you in the first place yeah. but but because you're a trusted provider and you give a shit about my privacy you're giving me the ability to take back control at least to some degree that's a big step forward in my in my books wow yeah well i've heard of something like that happening here right in adelaide as well mm. So, in fact, you should probably speak to this person from what they've done because they're, they're definitely built. Okay. So Love to. I, I, Love that's to. why we've got it as a question because I was, I was like, really? Because I believe there's a place for that. Okay. How that actually happens is the part that I think te only technology were, um, would know. And how quickly those things get adopted is is down to people like you and me to spread the message and, and to, to be able to get everybody to, to use their voice and say, this is important to me. This is important to me. To be able to have some control of how my data is used is important to me. And until we get people to understand that it should be of paramount importance to yeah. you, then we're going to lose that fight. Because I don't think, like, we got we got a kid here, Ollie. He likes to hide behind the camera. <laughs> but Ollie's fresh out of school. Wet behind the ears, like you could say a lot of things about him. He's not. He, they call him Meme Lord at uni. Right? <laughs> there's a there's a fucking title for that, right? But in saying that, I don't know if people believe. Like he said, I'm quite happy if so and so's got my data to use. And do you think people really understand how? If do you think if the whole planet knew what happened with Cambridge Analytica, that would make him go, "Oh, I'm not using Facebook." Uh, I don't know if I don't know if we'll get him. Did you stop using Facebook no. afterwards? No, I'm very. Um, I've trimmed everything down though. That's the point, right? It's yeah. being more selective yeah, about what you share. Time. You know, no, the, Nat, you if know, you're listening, you should do the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've had that conversation too, right? But at the end, at the end of the day, everyone needs to make their own decision. But in cybersecurity, okay, this is this is perfect because this is where it bridges from. You know, doing cybersecurity for big organisations that are mature and have have been thinking about this for a while, down to Joe Public. Yep. Right. What it comes down to is what is your risk appetite. That's the thing that we have to determine as an individual human being. You need to decide because there are certain things that you will choose to give up about your privacy to get convenience. That's basically yeah, that, what we're that, doing. That's exactly we're what sharing it is. our personal details in order to get convenience back. Now, if we're sharing our personal details and not getting any convenience back, that's a no-brainer. 
Well, that's what we're doing now. But even but oh no no sorry not sorry not getting anything back yeah we're not getting you, we're you getting get what I'm saying yeah you get you get what I'm saying yep. but but there's lots of organisations that don't give you any convenience back but are happy to take your data you know we should not we should stop doing that yeah but even where you're giving up your personal privacy in exchange for some convenience we should know where we're going to draw the line right and that's what that's what we call risk appetite. What is my risk appetite? What is my baseline that I will not go beyond? Yep. You draw that line very cleanly and very clearly for yourself and for your family. And you know each individual in the family is going to have to make up their mind eventually. But that's the line that you draw and you say, that's where I'm prepared to go. And then you practice what you preach with everyone that you share your details with online, including Facebook, your friends online, whatever. And don't be mistaken. Like if I if I share something with you, JP, my friend online, yeah, I don't want everyone to see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, but but the fact is that anyone could see yeah, that yeah, because yeah, JP true. could get hacked, I could get hacked, and yeah, eventually yeah. that gets online or it gets on the dark web. So let's be under no false pretenses that there is any privacy for what you do share online. What you share online stays online. It's there. Someone can access it somewhere, somehow. And that means it could end up all over the web at some point. So that's, that's got to be a very clear understanding. So you set that baseline for risk appetite, and then you, 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 you deal with everything online with that mind state, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great way. And you can look at it like if, you are, if someone's doing your superannuation, mm -hmm. you could be young and full of it and be high risk, and when you get older, you become a lot more selective with where your money's going because your your earning capacity basically shrinks. Or depends how life goes for yep. you. But it's a similar similar thought pattern. Yes, exactly right. No, I like it. I haven't looked at it like that. So with you growing up, what what's been, you know, what's probably been the biggest challenge that you've had in business that you've had to address? I think, well, loads of challenges like. <laughs> you know, but I think the, I've heard a few of them yeah. along the time, and and in the early days, it was actually getting people to believe what you were doing. Yes, like and that, and, that. and actually, actually give me a go. That was probably the hardest thing, yeah. and that and that goes back to the whole, you know, very close-minded, low-risk appetite, um, and you know that tall poppy syndrome thing, which I think is changing, but we need to double down on that. And now is the time to double down on that, so we can be competitive. But but you know, from a pure business sense. I think the most, for, this is for the entrepreneurs that are out there that are you know building building businesses and they and they want to build something that can be globally competitive. I think the biggest lesson for me was choose your customers wisely. Yeah. Because when you're growing up and you, you know, you're you're a startup company and it's all about making a dollar, right? To to be able to survive from one week to the next, you'll have a conversation with anyone. And anyone that remotely could resemble a customer, you'll have that conversation <laughs> and you'll put your every ounce of energy into that conversation. But the sooner you can mature your thinking to say, not every conversation is a good conversation. And, you know, these are the types of customers that I'm going after. And these are the ones that really can give me some value back. And that might not be value in money in the early days. It might just be value from a, a honest, open conversation. Yep. Right, those are the things that you need to think about because the amount of time I wasted having those conversations with anyone who would listen, you know, 
you spin cycles yeah. and those cycles cost you money and they burn runway yeah. and runway is everything so you know the sooner you can figure out what a um, a qualified customer looks like you know qualify in but more importantly qualify out okay. and don't have those conversations yeah. with the ones that are not qualified in okay if that makes sense yeah makes sense what what's to Two things, it doesn't have to be business, two things in life mm-hmm. that you believe 100% you, you actually act on or believe in that has made your life uh, better for what it is today. Well, I think I'm still on that journey. I don't think I've, I've, I've uh, fully baked that pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, but look, you know, the, the one thing that pops straight into my head is... I'm constantly thinking about the next generation. Yeah. So I, I definitely, I definitely like try to consciously be in the moment. I try not to live in the past or the future. Um, yeah, right. That's me. And, 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 and my wife thought, told yeah. me a good one yesterday. She said, she said that she heard from someone else that if you have one foot in the past and one foot on in the future, you are pissing on the present. <laughs> <laughs> Is that gold that or is what? Is that gold, gold or what? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is so gold. I definitely I'm not one to piss on the present. Yeah. Um, but I but I definitely and and maybe this is since having kids. No, actually, before kids, even you know, I was thinking about having kids. So I, I kind of had that mind state of the future generations, and you know, so <clears throat> way outside of technology yeah. um, is the environment. Um, and you know, we're all in a a pretty dire situation right now. And and anyone who doesn't realize that needs to be shot in my, in my books, you know, we have a lot of work to do from an environmental perspective and, and, and some of us are doing quite a lot. Some of us are doing as much as we possibly can. All of us can do more, no question about it, but, um, actually starting to think about what, what might the future look like for my kids' kids? looks pretty bleak right now yeah. uh, and that's that's upsetting for me because you know every species that disappears from the planet is one species that my my kids kids don't get to experience and why should they not have that opportunity when we've had that opportunity um and so it's our generation right now that has to do something about that and i believe technology has a major part to play look we have ai mm. very very advanced ai more advanced than a lot of people know about are we using that ai for the right reasons, yeah. you know, are we are we simply using it to fill out our pockets with more money yep. for the for the one yep. percent, or are we actually trying to think about how we can y- use it for good? And there are lots of organisations that are, um, and they need our help. Someone mentioned AI to just put a little bit of a capacity to how advanced it is. Is you talk about having the two smartest people on the planet, whoever those people are and then putting them together and what they come up with in the day. And then they reckon AI can then come up with that times 1,000 and then the next day time keep multiplying that out. That's how fast AI can work on... Sure. Is, uh, that, that, yeah. is that a good... Assump- well, uh, it depends. It depends. depends what under, yeah, it depends what they're talking about. They were about. talking about that Go game when they talked about Got the, it. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. different uh, complexity in it. Yeah, and sure. Now, 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 the thing that blew me away is the, there will never be someone to beat an AI computer in chess ever again. There, <laughs> there, uh, there'll yeah, never yeah. be someone to beat 
a computer in Go ever again. And who would have thought? Go back 10 years, a chess player, best chess player ever. <laughs> I will always win. But is that not a bit concerning? Well, it is, it is for me. Because um, what, you play chess? No, I don't play chess. <laughs> but, but look, I, <clears throat> that might be true algorithmically. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, you need a human. To turn to, the computer to, on? To turn, to turn the computer, more importantly, you need a human to turn the computer off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I know Elon Musk would agree with me, yeah. as would Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but at the end of the day, like, what is humanity without the humans involved? Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, that's we. I think we got to keep that in mind. And at the end of the day, what are we using AI for? Are we, are we using it to improve humanity and to improve the human condition or are we using it to overtake and take over the human condition? Yeah. I think we all know what the answer is to that. Um, but if we're not careful... Yeah, could be the other way. Mm-hmm. If there was one thing that you could do that could impact the world, mm-hmm. what would it be? And you might not be doing it now, but if there's one thing... Well, the, the the thing that I keep coming back to is my kids. Like, if I can if I can teach my kids to think more outside the box than I do, and to make more of an impact than I do, then I've got three kids, so that's times three. So that's a good start. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, and you could do anything on the planet, anything. Let's say money mm-hmm. wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about what that could be? Yes, I have. <laughs> So uh, it's not a one-liner answer. Oh, sure it's not. <laughs> I'd be a Formula One driver for sure. Yeah, you would. Hands but, down. But I wouldn't be as good as you at that. So I'm. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to lose it to you in anything. <laughs> <laughs> They're true. Yeah. But for me, you know, I'd like to find a way to look at the deforested areas in the world and actually figure out a way to turn that arid land which has become non-fertile um, and replant. Rejuvenate, Rejuvenate and, agriculture. Yeah. Yeah, yep, just started having a bit of a look about what that's involved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's basically reusing the ground that has been destroyed or harvested. Yep. And and then re-neutralising it. Is that a word? Yes. Yeah. That's good. Yep. And, yeah. Oh, that's great. Geez, very... Yeah, I want to be a Formula One driver. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fuck, we need people like Moen. <laughs> so, now, these, um, you know, mate, I could talk all day. I well, Unfortunately, I have to have a plane to catch, and I've been warned, because you're the sort of dude that we could actually do a four or five-hour podcast. <laughs> God forbid. Um, I think the next one I'm aiming for that, I would like to set a world record. <laughs> Um, well, not a world record because I think um, Harvey uh, Stern, ha- um, Stern, yeah, I think he's done over twenty four hours on. Yeah, that wow. would be fun. We could do that. We could. That would be very funny. <laughs> um, but now I'm going to ask you, ask this of everyone that comes in here: ask if you were a superhero, mm-hmm. what would your superpower be? And if you got a name for the superhero, I'm happy. But what would your superpower be? Well, look, I. Uh we had f- I have a superhero in mind. However, it's probably only for our generation and, and our forebearers because this is going to definitely reveal my age. <laughs> well, Flavia was in here um, last. What did she say? She said she would like to be uh, the sun solar flare. 
Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> she, she would like to be able to stand on the sun to see what it's like. Wow. So that was okay. her superpower. All right. Wow. Yeah. Well, mine, my, my, um, my thought went straight away to monkey magic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so why you know, because well, because he, he's a little bit naughty. Yeah, he's always thinking outside the box. Yeah, always. he's always getting in trouble, but he's always on the right of good and always trying to do good. And he's always having that fight between, you know, good versus evil, evil. and how to stay on the righteous path. And you know, I think that's that's my life summed up. And he rides around in a cloud. <laughs> Right? right, that's cool. Yeah. All right, yeah. all right, I'll give you that. Yeah. And there's one other thing. There's if you died, <clears throat> heaven forbid that's not too soon. If you died and came back as a board game. Oh, my God. What would your board game be? Now, to just give you time to think about that, I, you know, we had, we've come up this question. We've come up some interesting answers. Flavia's answer for that, she was the last one, was uh, a game called Risk, where you literally try and take over the world. My, my board game would be Scrabble, because you don't know what you're going to get, and sometimes it's valuable and sometimes it's not. So they're my two board games. Is there a board game that you can think of that you had to come back? <laughs> this, is, this is your reincarnation. Dude, this is your like, zen without moment. even thinking, there's only one board game that popped into my head, which just sums up my life perfectly. Snakes and Ladders. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking perfect. Snakes and Ladders. Say plenty of ups, plenty of downs. <laughs> And everything in between is nerve-wracking. <laughs> that is so cool. All right. Well, I am definitely, um, I'm definitely going to take that on board as as being your answer, Mo. We've just touched on some topics of cybersecurity. I know there's a shitload of things you actually can't talk about, which makes it interesting to have you as a friend. And it's it's really good that you get to be able to talk about some of these things because I think the the world. We hear about cybersecurity, cybersecurity in our exec meetings. It comes up our board meetings, but what are people really doing about it? And and you've said it today in a nutshell: is nailing, doubling down on your private, your private security, your private information is yours, and you need to make sure that you're owning it. And that's the way forward. And it's really good to hear from someone that's actually doing this, and someone that's actually seen what happens when data does get misused or when it's not. And I appreciate you. I thank you for coming in. You're a very good friend and I appreciate it. And awesome. Thank you. Thank you, JP. Appreciate yeah, boy. It.